Pod. Hello and welcome back to BNSSG PedsPod. I'm Ruth Bowen. I'm a Bristol GP working for the BNSSG Training Hub, bringing child and young person education to primary care clinicians. Today we're going to be talking about the limping child with a couple of differing approaches. Firstly, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr Natasha Smallwood, who is a general paediatric consultant with an interest in rheumatology, where we will be basing discussion around three cases, followed by discussion with Mr James Barnes, a paediatric orthopaedics consultant, for a slightly different approach. Hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks so much for coming here today to chat to us about the limping child. You're very welcome. Quite a tricky topic. <laughs> There's a lot of differentials to have in our heads when we're thinking about this topic. Do you have any approach to it? I think the most important thing when you're faced with a child with a limp is breaking it down to what age the child is and how that child looks in front of you, whether you're worried clinically about the child or whether it is simply just a limp that's brought them to see you in clinic. Okay. When you're going through the history and examination, again, do you have a particular approach to that? So it's very important, obviously, to look at the lower limbs and to look at um, not just, for example, the hip, but to think Mm. about the hip, the knee and the ankle, as well as the foot. Is there something simple on the foot that's stopping this child from having a normal gait? And then going through the history on recent illnesses. Is it simply just a limp or do they have a fever? Is there any joint swelling? Uh, Are there any rashes? And just getting a bit more background on what this child's presented with. Thank you. And you mentioned that generally, are you worried about them? Is this an unwell child? Absolutely. Do you mind just going through us with a little bit the red flags that we should be looking for and why they're important? Yeah. So if you've got a child in front of you, I think if you've got a young child, so under three years of age, you'd be have a little bit more caution. And obviously, if they've got a fever, so if they've got a high temperature of over 38, they look systemically unwell, then you're going to be worried. Again, if they're not weight bearing, so if they simply won't take any weight at all, then that would be a, an indication that you'd need to think about further investigation. Brilliant. And if we just use then a couple of cases, mm, of two or three cases today, just to highlight some of the things that we should be looking for. So our first one, a GP rings you about six-year-old Noah, who's brought in with a limp which started this morning. It steadily got worse through the day and he now seems unwilling to weight bear on his right leg. There's no history of trauma. Noah was previously fit and well with no significant family history. He's systemically well with normal observations and a normal examination, apart from slightly restricted range of movement in his right hip. What else would you want to know from the GP about this case? So immediately you're here with a child who's who's six year old and it sounds like they're clinically well, so they've not got a fever, that's going to be important. Whether they have had, again, any recent sort of viral infection or whether they're unwell currently with any Mm. kind of viral symptoms. Again, thinking about pain, is it just a limp? Um, or is the child in pain both at rest or simply just when you're moving the limb? The most common in this age group, so sort of between two and six-year-olds, you're going to be thinking about, is this an irritable hip? Is it a transient synovitis? But that's a diagnosis of exclusion. So mm-hmm. you want to be thinking, actually, do I need to think about any further investigations in this child? Or is this a child that I can safety net and give some, some analgesia and call later? I think, again, now you said they're non-weight-bearing. Yeah, so if, if they're non-weight-bearing, that's an important factor. And thinking about a differential, are we looking at a child who has an irritable hip? Or actually, do we need to think about further blood tests? Do we need to refer this patient into hospital, given the fact they're not weight-bearing at all? 
What would be your concern about them not weight-bearing? What other differentials might you have in your so mind? So septic arthritis is the big one that I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. And there's things that, unfortunately, you wouldn't be able to get acutely in primary care that would likely to be performed in the hospital. A simple full blood count and CRP to have a look. If you did have a child that was non-weight-bearing that you wanted to rule out a septic arthritis. Yes, you're right. So we talk about the Cocker criteria, don't we, with the mm. septic arthritis, but actually two of those. So looking exactly. at the white bloods to count yeah. and looking at the CRP, is yeah. it something is that we're going to do quickly? quickly? So no. for us, it is just the, have they got a temperature? Are they weight bearing? Yes. And if there's concerns in either of those areas... Then I think it's appropriate to come into hospital. And on the flip side, if they were presenting with a limp and they were very well, but they were weight bearing, at that point then you could give some anti-inflammatories, cystitis ibuprofen, perhaps call later in the day with some strong safety netting that if that child should develop a fever or become unwell, then the parents take them directly to the emergency department. And what's the role of the analgesia there, other than obviously to make the child comfortable? Does it help in your diagnosis at all? If it does have some pain benefit and they are then running around, that is going to be more reassuring to you that this isn't a child who's got septic arthritis. So it would sway you more towards the fact that it's likely to be a transient synovitis. Okay. We haven't talked about there being a cough or a cold or a recent illness in this child, Mm. or at least it's not been mentioned by the GP. Mm. Would that rule out transient synovitis in your head? Not necessarily. I'd always keep it in the back of my mind. You can be a bit more happy if you've got a child who's got a textbook. I had a Mm. viral illness last week and now the child is limping. But if you've got a well child, these viruses don't always present themselves fully. So I still have it as a differential. Yeah, I have about 50% in my mind, as only about 50% of them you can actually pinpoint a pinpoint virus beforehand. Does, that, blood does blood. that sound representative from your experience? I, th- I think it probably would be, to be honest, yeah. We don't always come across a definite virus. Yeah. Okay, so what would you be advising the GP in this case? Is this a patient that you'd be happy for them to send home, give some painkillers, follow up, or do you think they need more? If they were non-weight-bearing, then I would say they need to come into hospital definitely to rule out a septic arthritis. If it was a simple limp in a well child, then following up and seeing what progressed. Great, thank you. That's very clear. So the second case to move on to, a physician associate rings you asking advice about a four-year-old called Toby, who's intermittently started limping a few weeks ago, now progressed to a constant limp. There's no history of trauma and he's systemically well, but he's complaining of pain in his right knee. He's no significant past medical history and examination, again, is unremarkable, apart from stiffness and a bit of restrictive movement in the right hip. How does this change? What difference would you be thinking about with this case? So this one's a bit different in that obviously the duration is longer. It's more of an sort of insidious pattern. Again, you're in a similar age group, so you'd still think, could this be a transient synovitis? Unlikely, because it's gone on Mm -hmm. for a number of weeks. Obviously, you've got referred pain to the knee by the sounds of it. And the reduced movement and the lack of pain necessarily. Mm. You'd still be thinking in the back of your mind, is this a well child? Does this patient have a fever? Is there any chance this could be infection, septic arthritis, osteomyelitis? And I think as well, you've got to always, always think, could this be malignancy? So it's, again, it's a longer duration. Is there a history of weight loss, any night sweats? Is there anything that's making you think that this is an unwell child? In terms of differentials, again, the big one, so Perthes disease, this would be when you're thinking about your categories of age groups, Perthes falls into this age criteria. What sort of age do you tend to get Perthes? So it tends to be between four and eight. Mm-hmm. It is a boys uh, affected more commonly than girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's in about sort of a five to one 
ratio. So again, it falls into that category of where you're thinking about birthdays. Tricky one to diagnose <laughs> in general practice, and obviously it's not that common. But if you are having it as one of your differentials, obviously you need to refer on and think about any further investigations that you might need to think about. Practically, when you say refer on, where would that be referring? Would that be one to send to A&E or talk to orthopaedics about? So it would need an x-ray, obviously, to, hmm. to rule this out. And therefore, the orthopaedic team would be the best placed to have that conversation with. And actually, it doesn't necessarily need to be done immediately. So if the orthopaedic team were able to triage this referral acutely and mm. see them fairly swiftly, then that would be the best route in. So talking directly to the orthopaedic team. Thank you. And I know that certainly in the BNSSG area, we can refer directly to paediatric orthopaedics where it does get triaged within 24 hours by a consultant. So, so perfect. That would be the best. At least a great yeah. route that we've yeah, got luckily enough in our area. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Great. He then goes on and has x-rays which are consistent with Perthes. How would he be managed? How do cases of Perthes get managed? So he was four, wasn't he? He was. So over the age of six, Perthes has a poorer prognosis and may need some surgical intervention. Under six, then often they are managed conservatively and they do have a very good prognosis. He would need to have x-rays in hospital and and further follow-up and it would all be guided by the the orthopaedic team. So what would we be able to advise parents in terms of the expected duration of symptoms and follow-up, what could they expect going forward? So they may well have symptoms for some time and they may well need to be sort of have quite a lot of a conservative rest, bed rest and not to be too active. So I think at that age parents can be reassured that they're in a good age category and that social intervention won't necessarily be needed. Okay. Then moving on to a third case, which is a little bit different. So a GP rings regarding three-year-old Amelia, who's not been complaining of pain, but parents report that she's been limping for a couple of months, mostly in the morning. Her right knee has been swollen for around the same period. Otherwise, she's well with no significant past medical history or family history. She's afebrile and systemically well. Amelia walks across the room with a slight limp and her right leg slightly turned out. There's no erythema, but her right knee has a small effusion. All other joint examinations are normal. What else would you want to know? So this is where my uh, my most interest comes out. So you've got a three-year-old girl, and already she's limping for two months, you said, didn't yes. you? So you're already over that six-week category. This has been going on for a long time. You're still keeping your feelers thinking, could this be malignancy? You want to make sure that that's not the case. So if there's anything that really you're concerned about, thinking about where you are systemically well, ALL and neuroblastoma are the two most common malignancies that can cause limp in children. But it sounds like it's a well child and has got an effusion by the look of it. Mm. You're still going to want more information in your history. So you're still thinking about whether there's any fevers. Are there any rashes? I think you said no family history. No family history history at all. Any other joint symptoms elsewhere? And then also you've got a single, you've got a monoarthritis by the sound of it. So you're thinking about, could there be any recent travel? Do they live on a farm? Could this be TB? Mm. Just keeping that wide differential, like you said at the beginning, there's so many things to consider. One of the high diagnoses on that list would be, is this a, a juvenile arthritis and to classify that child has to be under 16 and has to have had joint swelling for over six weeks so if that's what you're thinking about then this would be a very appropriate referral into the paediatric rheumatology team who would see acutely with a single swollen knee 
So is that what you'd be advising them to do then? So referring to yeah, pediatric rheumatology? Absolutely, yeah. And not to do any investigations, that would be taken over by rheumatology? Yeah, I think given that they're three, it's not going to be that easy for you to get them in primary care. I've already said you've got a well child, you're not worried about malignancy or any other sinister diagnoses. Depending on how quickly the rheumatology team were able to see them, it might be the blood, so a full blood count. Again, that would be the most important to be looking at. But rheumatology and paediatric team are going to want to do other blood tests as well. So if they were going to see them fairly swiftly, that would all be done in hospital. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. that's the end of the three cases, but it'd be really useful to have a little bit of a further discussion mm, about course. specific red flags to look out for, yep. differentials that we absolutely don't want to miss. Yep. So you spoke to us a bit about malignancy. Yes. You've mentioned fever, are they unwell? Anything else specifically that you'd be looking for in the history or the examination of it's, the malignancy? It's very hard because it can be so non-specific. A child mm. can simply present with a limp or be off legs. If you've got any concern then a full blood count is easy to do and is a quick reassuring test that if you've got nothing else really you can't convince yourself that this could be a transient synovitis. So it's very important just to keep that in the back of your mind. Could this be something presenting in this fashion? Okay. Any other big ones you think really important that GPs and another primary mm. care clinicians So septic arthritis. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's something that you don't want to miss. It can lead to joint destruction if it's left untreated. So if you've got a child who has a high fever and they don't have a viral OT or something that you can explain that with, or they're, they're in a lot of pain, they're not weight-bearing. Mm. Um, and again, the frequency of septic arthritis becomes less common after three. So if you've got a younger child, again, that's going to be really important to be thinking about. Could this be something like septic arthritis or osteomyelitis that's presenting with a joint effusion? Keeping in the back of the mind the whole picture of the patient are there any rashes? Is there family history of psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease? Or are you considering more of an inflammatory diagnosis? Thinking about our older age group, mm-hmm. I think I said earlier that, that transient synovitis after six is less common. Yeah. And if you had an adolescent child who had a limp, who had any sort of deformity of the joints, they were holding their hip in an external rotation way, then uh, the other one thinking about is slipped up or femoral epiphysis or SUFI. And again, that would be something that you wouldn't want to miss. That commonly you see more in overweight boys or sometimes in very slim girls. And that would be diagnosed again by x-ray. Okay, so that's more adolescents, adolescents. more boys than girls. Exactly. That externally rotated leg is more of a ear should be pricking up at yeah. that point. Yeah, definitely. Does it tend to be an insidious onset or is that more like the case that we had before where it's only been going on a few days? It can depend. So there's different subtypes. So they can present acutely with pain in the hip, whereas other ones it's more insidious. Okay. Yeah. Thinking about non-accidental injury is one mm, that we can yeah. never forget. Sure. Are there any particular things there that we should be looking out for? If you've got a younger child who's non-weight bearing, if you've just got any concerns regarding their general presentation or interaction with the parents and you think there could be possibility of trauma if there's any bruising then yeah absolutely never forget that that could be yeah it could be a possibility what about those slightly unusual ones sometimes we get caught unaware and we think this is definitely a hit might be a knee and it actually turns out to be something that's not musculoskeletal at all and actually something going on in the abdomen okay yeah what about those sorts of cases is that something that we should be delving into with every case i guess when you're examining the patient as well as looking at the lower limb they present with a knee don't forget look at the hip as well look at the ankle Mm -hmm. as well because it can often be referred pain but also thinking about is there like you say an intra-abdominal cause 
Is there a hernia that could be causing pain in the hip? Is there a testicular torsion that could actually be presenting with pain in the hip? So with boys specifically, make sure that that is something that is being examined as well. Just going back to the, the swollen knee, thinking about family history, could it be a hemarthrosis? Could this be a haemophilia? So mm. that, you know, the importance of getting a, a detailed history and knowing the family well, which obviously in general practice is something that you have that, <laughs> that benefit of, would all be really important things just to, to keep in the back of your mind when you're seeing a child with a swollen joint. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. In terms of resources, so Bristol Children's Hospital's got a really useful flowchart, which actually goes through some of the things that you were saying earlier. With yeah. The child in front of you, are they acutely unwell? Have they got a fever? Do you need to be referring straight away based on that? And thinking about the transient synovitis, are there any of the red flags that we've talked about? If not, are they getting better? Follow them up with about five days. That's really useful, and I will link that under yeah. this podcast. Yeah, it's great. It's a great resource. Yeah, there's also a nice guideline on acute childhood limp, which goes through lots of differentials that we've talked about today. So I will link that. Yeah. Those aside, are there any other particular resources that you think would be useful either for primary care clinicians or for families when talking about limps or what to look out for, when to worry, when to come back and see a medical professional? I think, like you say, the ones that you've already mentioned, the hospital guideline I know is great. I know Remedy is a great resource and Mm -hmm. I know that the rheumatology team are in the process of trying to also put some guidance on that because I think that there's not as much currently about swollen joints and when to refer. So I think that will be coming soon. Great, that's one to look out for. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure for families. I think it's tricky, isn't it? Because you don't want to falsely reassure. So maybe then with these patients, these are the ones Mm. that we need to be following up, checking in with. Yeah, the differential is huge and could be very organic pathology in a hip. Irritable hip is a diagnosis of exclusion. And until you're happy that this child isn't, you know, this isn't a child that I think you would want to triage in a phone consultation, for example. If you've got a child, the parents are saying it's limping, it's not weight bearing, then that actually is a child that you need to see. Thank you. Do you have any particular key take home messages? Think about the age. Mm-hmm. Look at the child in front of you. Always forget, uh, always remember that this could be a malignancy and don't miss those big ones. And is there anything else going on? Are there rashes? Is there a fever? And keep that wide differential always open, I suppose. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Nice to meet you. You too. And now for a little bit of a different angle when talking about the limping child, I'm also joined by James Barnes, who's a consultant in paediatric and young adult orthopaedics at Bristol Children's Hospital. Hi, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Hi. Would you mind chatting us through your approach to the limping child? Do you categorise the presentations, for example, by age or duration or whether there's a trauma? How do you work through the potential differentials? Most of what I do, obviously, is in secondary care. So I tend to be lucky in the fact I've got a lot more information at the start. But the first thing, if you're seeing someone outside of hospital care, is to work out if there is a traumatic or atraumatic history. So that has to be number one. So any decent history of trauma is likely to end up in a focused exam of the area that hurts or the area that the parents tell you that hurts. So in the younger children, you should definitely listen a lot more to the parents. And then if you do find anything that is untoward, then it's likely they should be sent in for an x-ray and further review. So I think trauma is relatively straightforward. It's the atraumatic limp in a child that's probably the most difficult one. And I think that is probably best characterised by age. Mm -hmm. I think that in the very young, in the non-communicative 
baby, the most likely thing, if you want to diagnose based on odds, is you're going to be worried about some form of septic arthritis or an infection. So you're going to be focused towards when the immunizations were, have they had them recently, have they been unwell with an upper respiratory tract, are they using their limbs? If a child is old enough to be cruising, you'd imagine it's going to be somewhere around the nine-month-or-older mark, but have they got a limb that they're not using at all, or are they just using it less well than they otherwise would, or if they were crawling, have they gone back a step? And then you're going to do your temperature and then examine the joints you're most concerned about. And then I think if you're doing anything that's going to repeatedly make the child cry when you're examining again, then you're going to have to send them in to rule out septic arthritis. And then in secondary care, they will need blood tests, including CRP. They'll again need to rule out any other source for infection because obviously you can have a high CRP if you've got a sore throat or sore ears or runny nose, which is why it's difficult. But for us really, when you're considering an infection in around the joint that's making a child limp, so we're talking a lower limb, then you're going to want to be focused on the exam of the hip, knee and ankle to see if one reliably reproduces pain whenever you examine it. So for me, I don't think you can just examine the joint once. I think you need to examine one side and then the other side because anyone knows who treats children, they can cry anyway, and they can cry a lot or just not like you, and that's fine. But there's a definite change in pitch when you're doing something that is annoying to the child or when you do something that's very, very painful. So you start examining the side that you think is fine and just get that gauge for whether that child likes you or doesn't like you. And if you're lucky, they won't be crying, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And then you move on to where you think it's painful. And if they are crying, just get a gauge of how that cry sounds. And then if you move over to another area and it gets a higher pitch and louder, then you know you're causing pain and you can kind of focus on the area. And then don't just examine it once. Go back to the side that isn't painful, and then go back to the side you think is painful because you want to know that it's reproducible, it's it's not just random. And then if you do localise that to a joint, then the painful provocative examination findings in a hip are likely to be pain with internal rotation. So that's going to be the hip flexed at 90, the knee flexed at 90, and then you're trying just to move the hip without changing knee flexion. You don't want to confuse yourself. And then a limitation in the abduction range. If those tests provoke pain then you're probably going to be thinking hip if when you come down to the knee it's an easy joint to examine so if you get pain around the joint line or pain on flexion or extension then you could localize to the knee and again the foot and ankle you can palpate the bony prominences and then see if they get pain on dorsiflexion and that's probably what's going to give you the best marker as to which joints involved if it's a joint if you're not sure or it's too painful then you just need to refer in for a second opinion so that's the infants and the babies probably pre-walking Those are the ones that I think people worry about. They worry about the histories that are very difficult in the children who come in who have been unwell for a little while and then they appear to be localising to a joint but maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say and you know the upper test are likely to be a little bit raised. Mm -hmm. I think those are the difficult ones. For me, those are the ones that that would come in and that's how we would look at them when they come in. Okay. Then talking up through the different age groups. Yeah, so we were talking earlier about whether age matters as to what you're thinking in your head. So the reason I talked about infection in the infants and the young children is because in my practice as an orthopaedic, that is probably the number one thing I would be called to rule out in someone who is very young. Mm -hmm. As they get slightly older, then it becomes less likely it's infection and it is more a balance between is it infection or is it a transient synovitis? And then you can probably work out from the discussion we've just had in terms of they present with a history of other illness, carousal, etc. That is obviously the starter for both infection or transient synovitis. It can become very difficult to tell them apart. Inflammatory arthritis, probably the most common age I see it is around the age of two. The infantile that you worry about, the infected joint, and then going slightly older where you worry they might have transient synovitis. Around that age, two to three-year-old, 
they come in with a limp that feels a bit like it's transient synovitis, but it's been recurrent or it's not getting better after a couple of weeks, so they've been sent in for review. In those ones, I always bear in the back of my mind, is it a inflammatory arthropathy? Because you might do blood tests, it might show mildly raised CRP, but it's not quite high enough to make you think about infection. But it's not normal, and the limp's been going on just a bit long, and in those ones, I would usually do an ESR, and then I'd refer to one of the rheumatologists, because it's surprising how many of them actually would turn out to have a JIA or something. So a low threshold then for referring on yeah, I if think it's so. going on longer than you would expect for a transient synovitis. Exactly. So a transient synovitis is similar to you know soft tissue musculoskeletal things. You would expect two weeks is a really good rough unit of orthopaedic time that things should improve or get better or change. So if you've got something that is lasting less than two weeks, but it's recurrent, then eventually you're going to find a kid and parent that want to know why it keeps on coming back. And then I think that's worth a referral. And there are lots of systemic features that we'd be looking for in adults with potential arthritis would we expect to find any of these in the infants as well no so usually if you're going to get a kid around this age group it's going to be the first presentation so you've not got your symmetrical polyarthropathy you've got your monoarthropathy which is why it's referred in as a septic or a transient synovitis so usually it goes through that route first just because in terms of the sieve if you think about those three diagnoses you know transient synovitis no one really is concerned about because the treatment is conservative and it needs anti-inflammatories and then it should improve in a week and so That just needs monitoring at home with a review in a week. The other end, with the rheumatoid or or potentially septic arthritis, of those, the only thing that needs immediate treatment is a septic arthritis. So once you've ruled that out, the urgency is no longer there. It doesn't need to happen now, so it's not septic arthritis. It doesn't need to go to surgery. We don't need to drain it. Then what we need to do is just make sure we get the right diagnosis and then get them on the appropriate treatment. Uh, Transient synovitis, like I say, is self-limiting, so that is the last thing that you really need to worry about. Uh, but a rheumatological cause, then you would worry because it could be associated with eye problems. Or if you don't control disease early, then you can get other joint pains and issues. I will ask rheumatologists to see it and then they will either see it on call if they're available or if they see it in clinic next week. I think that's entirely reasonable. It's really helpful thinking of that way, actually, as a GP, because often when we're worried about these limping children, then just breaking it down in our head of saying, is this urgent, urgent? Am I worried about the really key things that need to go straight to any now? If the answer is no that can then reassure us that actually a phone call later in that week to check up and see how things are doing is enough. And if the trajectory isn't going as you're expecting, or it's not settling down over the next couple of weeks, then we need to be starting to rack our mind for those other red flag diagnoses that need to be referred on on a slightly less urgent basis. Yeah, exactly. As you get slightly older still, then the next thing orthopaedic-wise that we would think about in terms of a lower limb limp might be Perthes disease. Perthes disease is an idiopathic AVN of the blood supply of the hip. In my head, the patient I'm thinking of would be about seven years old and they'd be a skinny, active, ADHD-type child and they'd be complaining of just a limp or a limp and pain, which is likely to be going on for a little while, so it's less likely to be an acute history. It's not specifically that age. It can be anywhere from three to seven, eight, nine, ten. Best diagnosed with radiographs. In terms of clinical history, like I said, it'll be slightly longer history and maybe slightly less clear as to when it started, but usually there'll be a limp with activity, maybe pain. Most examinations, something like that, will be on loss of rotation. So you'll notice there'll be a slight loss of rotation and maybe a loss in hip abduction. The investigation of choice will be radiographs. 
And then treatment, by and large, will be a slightly expedited elective referral and treatment because initially it's mostly observation and review physiotherapy to increase abduction range to see how the hip's going to develop over time because it's a disease that's quite a long process that can take two years or so before it comes to completion. Okay. And we were talking about Perthes a little earlier on in this podcast. Are you happy for us to be referring them to you directly to paediatric orthopaedics? Yeah, definitely. So I think they should all be managed by paediatric orthopaedic surgeons. We would all be happy to see them on an urgent elective basis. Perthes is definitely one that I think should be urgent elective. And that's because it's a complicated disease. It's got a variable outcome. The management is sometimes complex. Parents need a long discussion. They need reassurance that conservative treatment is the starting point no matter what. And they need reassurance that they're going to have as much time as they need to answer all the questions when they see a surgeon in clinic. Perfect. Um, As you get older, then the rare one, but the one I focus on is a slip-tub femoral epiphysis. Which is unusual. So I think as a GP, if you're going to see a Sufi in your practice, I think in your entire career, practice of three, we'll see one between them. So it's really uncommon. But age range-wise, you're looking at the early teens. So the girls are looking at the 11-year-old plus or minus a couple of years, and then the boys are 13-year-old plus or minus a couple of years. Again, story of a long limp or long period of hip pain. Probably nothing too special, just a bit of pain. And sometimes they notice that the foot is turning out to the side. You would tend not to see, I'd imagine, the acute ones, because they tend to fall over and be very painful and unable to mobilise near fire ED. But if you get a teenage kid, usually they're slightly obese, but if you get a teenage kid who's complained of a hip pain or knee pain that's causing them a limp and it's not getting better in two weeks or you can't explain it, then I think you're obliged to x-ray their hip. If you have a full symmetrical range of motion in both hips, then you can quite happily, if it's your opinion, put it down to the musculoskeletal pain that you're not sure why, but it should settle down in two weeks. And that's okay. And then you review them again. I hope it gets better. And if it doesn't, you look into it more. There's a lot of worry about, well, what happens if someone comes in with knee pain and it turns out to be a, a slipped up from an epiphysis? Well, is that negligent? I don't think so, as long as you can explain people's symptoms. So if someone comes to you with knee pain and they've got a limp and you say, well, it might be musculoskeletal, it will settle down. Then they come back in two weeks' time and it's not settled down. Then you have to say, okay, then it's probably muscular. I'll, I'll x-ray it. And then if you x-ray the knee and the knee's normal, then I think that the next step is you say, well, they're still in pain. It's not got better. I should x-ray the hip because I know that 15% of knee pain is coming from the hip. And I think even if you then diagnosed it four weeks later than you otherwise might have done, I think that's a very logical sequence of events and that's very, very good practice, in my opinion. 15%? Yeah. That's a good number to know. Yeah, so it's quite high. It's higher than you think. And again, this is the difficulty because... So mostly I'm a paediatric hip surgeon, but if anyone comes to me with knee pain, they all get a hip knee and ankle exam. But it's just to be aware in the back of your mind. If someone complains of pain around the knee, usually it'll be the slightly overweight adolescent and it's not getting better. Don't forget to x-ray the hip. Great, that's a good tip. Thank you. No worries. Are there any other big ones that you'd have in your mind? So, malignancy. And what sort of malignancies might you see in a child that's presenting with an atraumatic limp? So all malignancy is going to be dependent on the age of a child because it does slightly vary. But things you would worry about would be osteosarcoma or chondrosarcoma or Ewing's tumour. Occasionally, maybe something like an adamantinoma, which is specifically a kind of anterior tibial lesion that, although it's benign, does have a high rate of becoming cancerous. And what in primary care should we be looking for to try and pick up those diagnoses? What might we see in the history of the exam? So you want systemic signs of cancer that you get in anyone. So all your red flood things. So you want to know about weight loss, history of cancer, general lethargy. And again, if the pain isn't settling in two weeks and then you're not sure what it is, but you can't localise it to a joint, you've then got a patient who's painful. You don't know why. 
it's not unreasonable to investigate that with x-rays or bloods depending on your clinical opinion and then if those are abnormal and by and large i think if you're dealing with either a benign or a malignant bone tumor x-rays are likely to be abnormal in some way and should we be examining the abdomen for masses and a feeling for lymphadenopathy in these patients or so are they I don't. not particularly relevant to these uh, So I don't. Well, firstly, I'm not good at it because it's not my comfort zone. You guys obviously do it more regularly and I'm better at it. If you come to me and you say, I've lost weight, I've got this general ache in my bones, I've got night pain, things like that, then already my alarm bells are going, and it doesn't matter if you've got nodes up or down, you're going to get a scan, and I think you've got cancer. Examining you and finding nodes or not finding nodes isn't changing where we're going from there. If there are nodes, we'll find them on the CT. It's the deep nodes you want to know about anyway, so I don't do it routinely. You guys are limited for time. I stick with where the easy wins are, so... Red flags that should be either very reassuring or should not be very reassuring. And I guess the only difficulty then is if you do get a red flag, then I don't think you can ignore it. I don't think you can say, oh, but it, you know, it's not quite night pain. You have to mm-hmm. treat it like it is. Thanks. If you break it down by age, it's easy because you look at a kid and you roughly know how old they are. And you can, in your mind, you're already thinking, well, OK, I've got my infection brain on. And you're going to ask questions about how they've been unwell. And if you go towards a teenager, you're going to say, OK, I've already got my Sufi brain on. Has it been hurting for a little while? Have you noticed the foot turning out? Whereas you wouldn't ask in a different age child. In terms of urgency of thing, for example, a slipped up femoral epiphysis, in my opinion, you should refer immediately to the on-call team and they should come in and we should see them all that day. Again, we're not talking about trauma. That's probably the only thing I can think of that you would need to refer in immediately that day. Other patients I see uncommonly that have things that can give them a limp are things like, so we've talked about the rheumatology, so the CRMO, JRA, JIA, which would all go under the rheumatology team. Cellulitis and scoliosis or leg length difference can give you a limp back problem, so spinal pathology or discs uh, or discitis, those kind of things can again give you a limp. Vascular problems, so either vascular malformations, which can give leg length discrepancy, pain, change in pallor, funny lumps, and obviously digital limb stuff. So in my assessment, it doesn't really matter on age, unless they're not walking, in which case I wouldn't make them walk. But um, You'd struggle too. So yeah, I do my best. Everyone for me, get them standing and I like to check leg length, so I'll put thumbs on your ASIS, and I'll just... If you can hang a picture straight, then you can put your thumbs on your ASIS, and you can see if one's higher or lower than the other. Then I get them walking, because it's really easy to see a painful gait when people walk. If you're used to watching people walk a lot, then you can work out whether that pain is coming from back, hip, knee, or foot and ankle. But if you don't watch people walk a lot, then that is a difficult thing to assess, apart from it looks grossly normal or abnormal. Then everyone gets up on the couch, so I'll put everyone supine. Like I say, I do hip, knee and ankle all in one go. I don't really examine the spine, actually. Unless that fits with the history, then I would examine the spine specifically. But in terms of a routine, limpy child, I'll do hip, knee, foot and ankle, and that should be enough. So hip-wise, again, you're going to flex your hips to as far as they go. Flexion internal rotation is probably the first manoeuvre that would give pain if someone has pain in their hip. And then another shout out to the tiny babies, because this is something that does come across GPs quite a lot, which is DDH or hip dysplasia. Probably the best test for hip dysplasia is abduction inflection. So if you've got a really new baby and you abduct their hips inflection, then both hips usually will touch the bed or get there or thereabouts. If you're examining anyone, I would probably say under the age of two or 18 months, if you abduct their hips inflection and it's asymmetric, I think you should think about DDH. And that should be a reflex referral. If they're very little for an ultrasound scan, they're older for an x-ray and then review. And I wouldn't be ashamed of you seeing lots and saying, oh, they're all asymmetric and then referring Mm. them in. 
and then just getting lots of negative results. I think it's much better to know about it early than late. If you look at the evidence behind examining hips when they're younger, it can actually be in the early stages very difficult to pick up if there is a unilateral DDH in, you know, let's say kids who are under eight weeks old or so. So I know they come to you for their six, eight week check, but it is actually quite difficult to pick it up even sometimes in experienced hands. It's a difficult thing to do well. Mm-hmm. But I think the money is abduction and flexion. And if you certainly you're ever unsure whether it's uneven or not, just get a scan. Internal rotation and flexion. Particularly if you're limited in time, that's the one that's going to give you the pain, if pain's what you're looking for. Otherwise, no one cares about the range. What we just care about is the asymmetry. Palpation around the hip in a child is unlikely to be of that much benefit, unless you've got maybe a teenager, maybe with trochanteric bursitis, in which case you can palpate around the side. And then I would go to knee, check the extension. I always check hyperextension just to see if it's comparable with the other side. And then I flex the knee up as far as it can go, just to see if it's tender or not. And then in terms of kids and knee pain, Again, if we're sticking with atraumatic, then you're probably thinking of your overuse type injuries. You're thinking of adolescents, kind of first growth spurt age, who are just hitting senior school and doing some slightly more aggressive sports, particularly jumping sports. And you're thinking of your Cindy Glass and Osgood Slatters, PFJ issues. So you just feel the bony prominences around the knee. And then check stability. But I think if you've got this atraumatic limp, it's mostly palpation. Tibial tubercle, patella tendon, inferior bit of the patella, and then go around the joint line. That's probably all you need to and then foot and ankle when I stand them I look at their feet from the back as well and get them to stand on tiptoes because mm-hmm. you guys probably see a lot of flat feet because they're common and people seem to be quite bothered by flat feet but if you stand on tiptoes and your heels swing into various and your arches reconstitute it doesn't matter they're flat they're normal and the okay. rate of them being painful is the same as normal feet being painful so you just want to make sure they've got five toes the foot looks like a foot and you can also flex it ideally beyond like 15 degrees beyond 90 Loads of these adolescents are tight. You probably get lots of atraumatic exercise-related pain, to knee pain, heel pain, plantar fascia pain, and a lot of it is due to tight articular muscles around growth. They do very well with physiotherapy and stretching. Do you have any key take-home messages for primary care clinicians when it comes to examining the atraumatic limp? My top tip, knee pain, think hip. Night pain, think infection or tumour. If they can't straight their grades, think discitis. Limp in orthopaedics, we are usually talking about a joint. So I would be very happy if you could localise it to a joint. Because if you've got a joint that's painful and the age range of the patient and whether it's acute or chronic, with those three things together, you're a Google away from the answer. And I guess on the back of that, if you can't localise it to a particular joint, then that's when you're going to have a red flag in your mind of actually, am I missing something? Is there a malignancy? Is there something going on in the abdomen? What else is there to the picture that I've not picked up on? Yeah, other things that are uncommon that I would be scratching my head around in exactly the same way because it's not fitting my nice musculoskeletal pattern. You've got that something in your head and you're like, well, this isn't quite right or I don't really understand. Then ask for help. We all need help, sometimes just because you're having a bad day, but sometimes because it's genuinely confusing. I think that you guys should refer to the on-call team when you're not sure. But you've got two options. Your first option is you go, well, I'm not sure, but it's been going on two days this could be a muscular type thing. I will give it a week or two weeks to settle down. But if they come back in two weeks and it's not settled down and you still can't localise it and you still don't know and you're not sure, then I think you have to speak to someone. Hmm. Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's really helpful getting an orthopaedic opinion on the atraumatic limb. Lovely to have those two different positions to come from. Good. Thank you. No worries. Cheers. That was Dr Natasha Smallwood and Mr James Barnes sharing some of their expertise around the limping child.
Thanks for joining us today and do look out for upcoming monthly episodes on primary care appropriate paediatric topics. Do leave feedback and add comments about topics you'd like to hear. The contents of these podcasts are for educational purposes, aimed at primary care healthcare professionals only. They do not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Information presented is the opinion of the healthcare professional interviewed based on their interpretation of best practice and guidelines at the time of the interview. It is the listener's responsibility to compare information given with up-to-date national and local guidelines. The BNSSG Training Hub, Ruth Bowen and interviewees are not liable for any clinical decisions made as a result of this podcast.